0: morning, everyone. I'm going to grab this real quick. Um, it is great to be with you all uh, this morning, and just, yeah, just a good, it's a good uh, time to be back home. Um, we don't make it in very often, but um, it is just a joy for us to be with you this morning. Um, as Jason said, uh, my wife, Meg, and I grew up here, and, um, and now we're working with college students up in Blacksburg uh, on campus at Virginia Tech. And, um, and I think that uh, for us, it's probably, it's probably impossible to capture the impact that this place and all of you have had on us. Um, you know, I think from, from the very beginning, and in a lot of ways, you raised us. You helped raise us. Um, you gave us your time and your energy to care for us. It was through you all that I began for the first time to ever get a sense of who God was and his majesty and the glory of his kingdom. Um, I've sat with many of you while I'm trying to memorize Bible verses in to and you've helped shape and build my understanding of who God is and, and what he's doing in, in our world. And, and it was here that um, I was challenged for the first time to consider uh, going into ministry and so, uh, from the time that we uh, started in Blacksburg six years ago, um, you have been there for us, supporting us financially, encouraging us, um, praying constantly for us, and for our people in Blacksburg. And um, I, I just there's no there's no way that Meg and I are where we are, doing what we're doing, apart from you all. And so, the Lord is is still continuing to use that investment in Blacksburg, continuing to further His kingdom and. Though our, uh, though our students may never know your names, may never see your faces, they certainly feel your impact as we get the chance to sit across the table from them, walk with them through life. And, and so it is a, a joy to be with you. We can't thank you enough for all that you have done and for all that you continue to do for us and for the kingdom. Um, truly an honor, truly an honor to be with you today. I know that you all just finished up a series uh, looking at how the Old Testament points to Jesus, and I want to kind of piggyback off of that today. I feel like the passage that the Lord led me to today uh, is is in some ways looking back at this story of how God interacts with his people, how he moves on their behalf, but also it points us forward. It points us into what he's doing now and what, uh, what he will be bringing to completion at some point. So let me pray for us and then we will jump in. Holy Spirit, we are so excited to gather in your presence today. Thank you that you are here, that you are at work. Please give us eyes to see, ears to hear, hearts to receive, the things you have for us today. In Jesus' name, amen. On May 25th, 1961, before a joint session of Congress, President Kennedy announced that the United States would be putting a man on the moon. This was quite an announcement. It was met with overwhelming excitement. For as long as we have been here, humanity has been staring up at the sky, staring at the moon in awe. And now the president has said, we're going to send somebody there. It was a pretty amazing thing. But while there was a lot of excitement there, in reality, I think people looked at it and thought, this is a little bit of a pipe dream. It's kind of, it's complete fantasy that the U.S. space program in just eight years would be able to uh, put a man on the moon. President Kennedy had said that it would be by the end of the decade, and while there had been some space exploration, a few probes, and, and just a few weeks before this announcement, astronaut Alan Shepard had made a 15-minute flight into outer space, we were still a long way away. Um, the, the technology The uh, knowledge of of science and math, it simply did not exist when he made this announcement. NASA was confident that they could make it happen if they had time, that they could discover and they could invent, but in eight short years, what could really take place? On top of that, it was a huge financial commitment, a staggering amount of money in order to make this happen, and so the question was, where is the money going to come from? And while people were excited by what President Kennedy said, I think they probably looked at his confidence in making this actually happen, and they thought, this is kind of ridiculous. Of course, we know how the story goes. Spurred on by President Kennedy's announcement, his confidence, NASA spent the next Eight years basically working around the clock, discovering and inventing one thing after another, one piece of technology, one piece of mathematical theory after another, and against all odds, on July 20th, 1969, Neil Armstrong and Buzz Aldrin stepped out onto the moon. Last weekend was the 50th anniversary of this truly mind-blowing achievement, the effects of which we are still feeling today. And really, it all started with this one seemingly ludicrous announcement. I want to talk this morning about another seemingly ludicrous announcement. I want us to look at Luke chapter 4 today and, and what Jesus is doing there to kind of set the scene for you a little bit. Jesus has been baptized. He uh, goes into the wilderness where he's tempted by Satan. And what we're going to read today is basically the first thing that he does as he begins his public ministry. It's the first thing that Luke specifically records of his public ministry. So let's start reading in, chapter, in verse 16 of chapter 4. It says, And he came to Nazareth where he had been brought up. And as was his custom, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim liberty to the captives and recovering of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. This is a huge moment in the life and ministry of Jesus. This passage that he reads here is from Isaiah 61, verses 1 to 3. And really, what, what we see Jesus doing and saying in this moment, it kind of serves as a almost like a thesis statement for what his life is going to be about. Effectively, he's saying, through me, these things that I've just listed, they're going to happen. I'm going to bring those about. They're happening now in your midst. And this announcement of the things he's going to accomplish, the things he's going to be, is truly staggering. Provision for the poor, liberation for the oppressed, recovery of sight to the blind... But what I want us to focus on initially is that last line of what he reads there. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. That phrase is probably a little unfamiliar to us, but to those in attendance that day, this was something they would have immediately known what he was talking about. It was an idea that had been passed down from generation to generation throughout the history of Israel. The story of God with his people and in the Mosaic law. The year of the Lord's favor is actually a party. It's a, a party that God mandated for Israel in Leviticus chapter 25. This party was to be celebrated only once every 50 years, and it was to last a year. It went on for a whole year. And this party was called Jubilee. So let me show you what it looks like in Leviticus chapter 25. We'll start in verse 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. I mean, I don't know why they describe it that way. It's incredibly complicated. But 49 years, we get it, right? 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet. And on the the tenth day of the seventh month, on the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year. And proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you. When each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That 50th year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of the ground or of itself. Nor gather the grapes from the undressed vine. It is a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. The rest of chapter 25 goes on to describe in in greater detail the things that were to happen in this year of Jubilee. And I'll try and summarize those as best I can. But we start to get a sense of what's happening here. Effectively, what God is doing is is he intends for this to be a a celebration that uh, points Israel, points his people toward what he has promised he will do. To point their eyes into the future and his action that he has promised to take on their behalf in the days ahead. It it anticipates what life will look like when God undoes everything that is broken in our world. When he rolls it back, when he mends what is broken, when he undoes what is wrong, the evil that we have wrought in the world. This is what life on earth is going to be like, or at least it's going to give them a taste of this. And so uh, in this year, what we see is God kind of doing some things, having them do some things that rolls back some of the things that we have wrought in the world, some of the evil that we have created. In this year of Jubilee, all slaves were set free. If there was uh, oft, What often happened was uh, there was uh, someone who fell into poverty and had to, in order to pay their debts, had to basically sell themselves into indentured servitude. In this year of Jubilee, they would be released. And not only released, but they would uh, be cared for, to kind of restored to their previous life. If any family had uh, incurred debt, if they had gone into a, a poverty situation and had to sell off family property, land or a, a home or a barn, whatever, all of that property was returned to them in this year of Jubilee. No, no payment. It was returned to them. Also, folks were uh, to go back to their families. If they had moved away, if there was some sort of conflict that had existed in their family, whatever was the case, they were to come back together that year in the year of Jubilee to be reconciled. Again, God undoing these things that we have wrought in the world. And so we begin to see, get a sense of God's purpose here. This year of Jubilee was commonly referred to as the year of the Lord's favor. And this is what Isaiah is referring to in chapter 61 of his prophecy. Jubilee meant good news for the poor. It meant God himself liberating those in bondage. God himself comforting the mourning and brokenhearted. It was a glimpse of what life would be like when God did what he promised he was going to do, when he mended all that was broken in our world, when he Reigned on earth again as he does in heaven. This was the great hope of Israel. This is the thing that they're waiting for. This, not just God to come back and and kind of take them away, but that things would be undone. The evil that we had wrought, that they would be mended. And so when Jesus stands up in the synagogue in Nazareth, and says, the year of the Lord's favor is here and it's coming through me, they know what he means. They know that he's basically saying, these things you've been waiting for, the mending of all that is broken, the undoing of all that is wrong, they're here. They're going to happen in and through me. And he uses this institution from the Old Testament, even just the, the whole practice, the story of Jubilee, through the, of the people of Israel, he uses it to kind of say, this is what I am going to do. This is who I am going to be. You're going to see these things happen. Essentially, he takes this practice of jubilee and through it announces what would become the dominant theme of his life, the thing that we say, hear him say over and over and over again throughout the Gospels, the kingdom of God has come to earth as it is in heaven This is his announcement to the people in Nazareth that day. But frankly, this announcement sounds kind of crazy to them. This is the carpenter's son. They've known him his whole life. What he's talking about sounds crazy, even blasphemous. But what is even crazier is that Jesus does exactly what he says he's going to do. He spends his life doing these things proclaiming good news to the poor, setting the captives free, sight to the blind he heals people left and right. the very next thing that happens in chapter 4 uh, that Luke records is Jesus casts out a demon and this man is set free from the oppression of demonic forces. We all know the the story in Luke or in John chapter 8 where the the woman is kind of uh, Jesus stands up for her and rebukes, The religious leaders on her behalf, freeing her from that oppression. He's healing people all the time. He spends his life with the poor, caring for them, living among them, providing for their needs. He spends his life giving sight to the blind, both physical sight and spiritual sight. The ability for them to see who he is and what he's doing in the world. And as we read the Gospels, what becomes abundantly clear is that throughout Jesus' life, not just his death, but All the way through, throughout his life, the year of the Lord's favor has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. And then Jesus does the ultimate work of of undoing evil in our world. He lays down his life on the cross, thereby conquering the power of sin and death, making a way for all people and all of creation to be set free from their bondage. Jesus' life, his whole life, everything he does, it ushers in this year of the Lord's favor, the kingdom of God on earth. And the true jubilee, the thing that the Old Testament practice was pointing toward, it begins. But this year of the Lord's favor, it isn't put on hold when Jesus ascends to the Father. In John chapter 20, verse 21, he's with the disciples and it's right before he ascends. And he says to them, as the Father has sent me... So I am sending you. What he's saying is, yes, God's kingdom has come. He's doing some of these things from Luke chapter 4. He's doing some of these things through me. But there's more. And yes, I'm going to come back and I'm going to fully establish this kingdom. I'm going to fully mend all that is broken. But in the meantime, I'm not simply leaving you to wait. I want to be still working through you as the Father has sent the Son. So now I send you you in the power of the Holy Spirit. And this is exactly what we see happening in the book of Acts. The Holy Spirit, that is, God himself, comes and takes up residence in the believers. And Jubilee continues. There is good news for the poor in chapter 2 as their needs are met in the body of believers there in Jerusalem. In chapter 3, we see people being healed from diseases and afflictions there are people who are being freed from demonic oppression. Chains literally fall off of captives a, a captives a couple of times with Peter and with Paul. And sight is given to the blind. And this is a work of the Spirit that is really beautifully encapsulated in Paul's conversion experience where he reco- recovers sight, his eyes are opened both spiritually and physically the things that Jesus has announced in Luke chapter 4, the things that he spent his life doing, are continuing. The year of the Lord's favor has not been put on pause. His people have not been asked to just wait around for him to come back. But his kingdom is still advancing. Brokenness is still being mended in the book of Acts. And it is still being mended today. We are living right now in the year of the Lord's favor. God's kingdom is still at hand by the power of the Holy Spirit at work in us and in the world. His kingdom is still breaking in. We are not simply waiting for him to come back so that we can enter into the kingdom of God. It has come here. It is among us. He is at work. This is what Jesus proclaims to us today as he did in Luke chapter 4. But frankly, this proclamation seems every bit as ridiculous now as it did back in Nazareth. Because when we look out into the world, we are bombarded with evidence that this is not the case. That the kingdom is not at hand. That God is not at work. That God is not mending what is broken in our world. We look at our own lives and we know the despair and pain and difficulty. We are confronted day by day with disease and death, broken family relationships, among many other things. We look around us into the world and we see injustice and poverty and oppression everywhere. And it is so tempting to despair. To let go of this truth, of this hope that God is at work in our world. We feel at times that it might just be better for us to kind of just hunker down, stick our heads in the sand, and wait for Jesus to come back. But to do that is to miss out on what he's doing right now in our midst. There's no question that we await Jesus' return in order to experience the fullness of his kingdom. But it's also true what God repeats over and over and over again in the Old Testament and the New Testament, I am making all things new. It is happening right now. I've seen it, and you probably have too. I see it in the girl who came to Blacksburg last last school year hating God, hating God's people, wanting nothing to do with the church, nothing to do with God but who I now see every Sunday standing before us leading our congregation in worship, in praise of that same God. This girl has just decided to uh, become a small group leader in our church to help others pe- other people see the reality of this kingdom breaking in. I see it in the guy who for years was enslaved by pornography, but who now has had those chains broken by the Lord and who walks in purity. I see it in the girl who last year attempted suicide and who had to be admitted to a mental health facility. And during her time there, God not only began healing her, her mind, her body, her soul, all of it, but she was sharing the gospel with the people that she met there. I see it when that same girl stands up before our church and tells her story of depression and anxiety but also of God's work in her life, his liberation of her. In order, she shares this in order to encourage her brothers and sisters. I see it in the student who was abused as a child, but has somehow found family, true family, in the family of God. The kingdom of God is breaking in. The year of the Lord's favor is still here. We have hope even in the most desperate circumstances. The Lord is at work and he gives us an opportunity. He calls us in, invites us to be a part of that work right alongside him. This is the good news for us this morning. But it cannot simply be a pleasant thought that kind of brings a smile to our faces and leaves us feeling a little bit better than we did when we arrived here this morning. This good news demands a response of us. If it is true that God is at work right now in our world, if it is true that he is mending what is broken, if it is true that he is undoing what is wrong in our world, then that truth bears tremendous consequences for our daily lives. Because as the Father sent the Son, so now the Son sends us. And so today we must ask ourselves some questions in response to this good news. The first question is this, are you clinging to this hope? Are you still holding on to this hope? Are you still trusting that God is at work? Do you truly believe that he is mending what you know to be broken in your own life and all forms of brokenness in our world? Or have you lost hope? Have you let go of this truth that God is at work? Are you overwhelmed by despair when you look in the mirror, when you you examine your own life, or when you look out into the world and you see so much pain and darkness and difficulty, when you consider things like human trafficking, the refugee crisis, devastating disease, the political climate in our country? As you ask yourself these questions, if you find that you have let go of that hope, the truth that God is at work, take heart today. Grab hold of that hope again. Take those places where you look at your own life or you look into the world and you say, I don't see, God, how this could possibly be mended. The places where you feel utterly desperate. And bring those to him and say, Lord, please do something with them. I believe you are doing something there. Help me to believe that you're doing something there. The second question is Are you watching? Are you watching for his work around you? Are you expecting him to show up in your life? Are you expecting him to show up in your workplace, in your home, on your kids' soccer team? This is the question that was really weighing heavily on me this week, knowing I'm going to talk about this. Yes, God is at work, but am I actually looking for him? Am I actually expecting that he might move in my day-to-day walk of life? When was the last time I stopped to consider that God might be doing something around me in the midst of all the tasks? That he might be doing something in the life of my neighbor who I see going in and out of my apartment every day, in and out of their apartment every day, but who I've never spoken to. And honestly, I couldn't remember the last time that I'd stopped to consider that, to ask, God, what are you doing here? How are you at work? Maybe that's where you find yourself as well. Are you watching Are you expecting to see God at work around you? Are you asking him to show you how he is working? Are you rejoicing when you see him moving? And when you do see him moving, are you telling those stories? We need this. In this faith family, we need those stories. Because when I am losing a grip of that hope, when I'm losing grip of this this reality that God is at work but then I hear you share your stories of how God is moving, how you seen him show up, of how he's even used you in the last week. You become my eyes. You help me hold on. We need these stories. Share the stories as we watch. And lastly, are you entering into the work that God is doing around you? Those things that Jesus listed in Luke chapter 4 are still the places where he is at work today? Are you entering into that work alongside him? Are you caring for the poor? Are you walking with people on their way out of bondage? Are you comforting the brokenhearted? Are you helping people see the reality of God's kingdom in our world? How is God calling you today to be a part of this kingdom breaking in, the kingdom of goodness and peace Advancing in our world. How will you enter into that work this week? As we go today, may we experience the joy of the year of the Lord's favor. May we see all around us the work of our Father in mending what is broken in us and in our world. And with eager expectation, may we jump into that work right alongside him. Knowing that he is making all things new. And that as the Father sent the Son, so now the Son is sending us to be a part of this miraculous work that he is doing here in our midst, day by day. Let's pray. Father, we praise you this morning. We praise you that you are at work, Lord. Even when we have a difficult time seeing it, Lord, we praise you. Lord, I imagine that we have all had moments where we are tempted to despair. We are tempted to let go of this hope, this reality, God. But I pray today that you would help us grab back hold. You would help us have eyes to see how you are working. And that you would call us as we are watching to come in, to enter into this work alongside you, God. Please be mending. Us, each of us, God, mending what is broken in us. Be mending our schools, be mending our towns, be mending our families, all the places we find ourselves. Lord, be at work and use us to be a part of this restorative work that you are already doing. pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.